Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming along. Um, on behalf of the Board of Directors, Peter Mason, and the Executive Director, Greg Lindsay, I have the privilege of welcoming you here to the Centre for Independent Studies. I'm going to skip the part where I tell you about the importance of education, because the fact that you're all here on a Tuesday night in the school holidays demonstrates that you already know how important it is. Education is a central part of the work of the Centre for Independent Studies because it's the foundation of prosperity, freedom and quality of life, not just for society but for individuals. One of the first CIS publications was The Education Monopoly Problem by E.G. West, which we published in 1989. I suspect that Minister Gibb will be familiar with Professor West's influential work. If Minister Stokes and Mr Scott are not, then I can certainly help to remedy that. While well, I've written on a wide range of education topics, my particular areas of interest in the last few years fall into two broad categories. One is school choice, which picks up the themes in Edwin West's work, and the funding and governance of policies underpin school choice. The other is improving the literacy rates of Australian children. Reading is the key to knowledge, and knowledge is what defines a good education. Far too many children and adults cannot read even after years of schooling and numerous interventions and programs that cost millions of dollars every year. Universal literacy is not a blue sky goal in a country like Australia. It's achievable and one would hope unassailable. We know more about how the brain learns to read than about almost any other aspect of education. We know that children require ex explicit systematic instruction so they become fluent with the English written code within a wider literacy program that develops their vocabulary and comprehension. In fact, the research evidence about how to best teach reading based on the science of learning has been described as the strongest and most consistent, consistent evidence base in all of the social sciences. And yet, as many as one in four children in Australian schools is struggling with reading. Why? Because this evidence is often ignored or dismissed. There are signs that this has begun to shift, but it's far too slow. The Five from Five project at CIS was developed to accelerate the process from getting that research evidence into classrooms. Reading is perhaps the most obvious example of evidence being ignored, but it's not an isolated case. The evidence for effective teaching, which ought to be defined by how well and how much students learn what is being taught to them, but sometimes inexplicably isn't, is pretty robust. But again, it's routinely dismissed in favour of whatever looks new and fun or alternatively fits a, a social agenda. Children begin schooling facing different kinds of challenge, depending on their cognitive abilities and their home environment. Effective teaching based on strong evidence is the best tool at our disposal of providing all children, especially those that start school with a disadvantage, with the possibility of a full and satisfying life and that their own children will have that too. As one of our speakers this evening, Minister Gibb has previously said, teaching is a deceptively complex art. But as he has also acknowledged, it's not true that it's too complex to measure and define. Childhood is fleeting. Some things are more important for children to know than others, and some ways of teaching are more effective than others. The responsibility of educators and educational authorities is to ensure that the many hours children spend at school are used to the best possible purpose. The purpose of this evening is to exchange ideas about how we can be better at that. It's my sincere pleasure to formally introduce our guest speakers this evening. 
The Right Honourable Nick Gibb MP is the Minister for School Standards in England. He's been the Conservative member for Bognor Regis, Littlehampton since 1997 and served as Shadow Minister for Schools from 2005 and became Minister for Schools in 2010. During that period, England's school sector underwent unprecedented structural reforms, including the expansion of academies and the introduction of free schools. There are also important reforms to curriculum, pedagogy and assessment. Honourable Rod Stokes MP will speak after Minister Gibb. Minister Stokes is the Minister for Education in New South Wales and has been the Liberal member for Pittwater since 2007. Before becoming Education Minister earlier this year, he held a number of portfolios, including Minister for Planning, Minister for the Environment, Minister for Heritage and Minister for the Central Coast. Minister Stokes, I was in interested to discover, is an honorary fellow at Macquarie University, which some of, has some of the best reading researchers in the world, some of whom Minister Gibb met this afternoon. Our third speaker this evening will be Mr Mark Scott, who is the Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education. Before assuming that role in 2016, Mr Scott was Managing Director of the ABC, following a number of executive and editorial roles at Fairfax, including Education Editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. He's also been a secondary school teacher. So we'll have time for questions this evening after all of our guests have spoken. First though, to Minister Gibb. The Minister first came to my attention when I was doing my PhD a few years ago as a strong proponent of phonics instruction in teaching children to read. He's been a relentless and persuasive advocate for ensuring that children learn to read early and proficiently, including the introduction of a year one phonics screening check to make sure that happens. I know he has many allies and supporters in the room this evening. Please welcome Minister Gibb. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. And it's a real pleasure to be uh, here in uh, Sydney. And can I just say thank you to Rob Stokes and to Mark Scott and to Jennifer of the Centre for Independent Studies for, for hosting this event and for giving me the opportunity to, to show off uh, some of the things that we've been doing uh, in England in reforming our education system since 2010. I do say England because we have a devolved system. Uh, Scotland and Wales have their own assemblies and their own education system. So whenever I talk about uh, the reforms, they apply to England. So in 2009, uh, Michael Gove, uh, who was then soon to be the Secretary of State for Education uh, before the 2010 election, explained how the British people's uh, common sense aligned with the soon-to-be government's belief in what education uh, is for. And he said, and I quote, the British people's common sense inclines them towards schools in which the principal activity is teaching. And he went on to say, where the principal goal is academic attainment, uh, the principal guiding every action is the wider spread of excellence, the initiation of new generations into the amazing achievements of humankind. So since 2010, uh, the government has stuck to this evidence-based common sense approach. Greater autonomy was given to head teachers, those who are best placed to implement evidence-based improvements to education to innovate and improve their schools. Increased autonomy was twinned with intelligent accountability that supported best practice in schools. And a culture of innovation in schools coincided with the growth of online communities of teachers determined to spread evidence-informed teaching practice. So the government overhauled a curriculum that was denying pupils the core academic knowledge and reformed the, the examination system, breathing new confidence back into our national qualifications, the GCSE and the A-level. And as improvements have been seen across the country, the government is now focusing its attention on driving social mobility 
uh, in remaining cold spots area around the country that need further support. The previous government had been swept to power on the echoes of education, education, education back in 1997. But despite their best intentions and huge uh, investment in the education system, uh, England's foremost education academic, Ro Rob Coe of Durham University, concluded uh, that at the end of that period, what he said was, the best I think we can say is that overall, there probably has not been much change. So a change in direction was badly needed in 2010, when the new Conservative government under David Cameron came into power. Schools at that time were shepherding pupils, disproportionately those pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds, into taking so-called equivalent qualifications to GCSEs to inflate the school's ranking in the performance tables. The growth of equivalents uh, coincided uh, with a sharp decline in the take-up of highly valued academic subjects, including foreign languages. Grade inflation in GCSEs and A-levels was rife, undermining uh, national confidence in those national public qualifications. And despite the birth of the Academy's programme, the freedom associated with the Academy programme were only being enjoyed by a few hundred schools. So whilst Academies were first introduced by the previous government under the stewardship of the Labour peer uh, that is now Lord Adonis, Andrew Adonis, their roots hark back to reforms by Kenneth Baker in the 1980s, demonstrating that politicians on both sides of the political divide recognised the importance of empowering teachers to deliver improvement in education. So what are academies? We've heard them spoken about by Jennifer. Well, academies are former local authority maintained schools, as all schools were, apart from the private sector schools, uh, now they're being run by charitable trusts instead of the local authority, but they're fully funded by central government. And with this new structure comes greater freedom over such things as the curriculum and how the school is managed. And similarly, free schools, these are newly established schools, academies, uh, that benefit from the same freedoms as academies, but they, are, but they provide teachers and charities and education foundations with the opportunity to set up that new school uh, to shape the next generation of England schools. And since 2010, uh, we've now established over 500, nearly 500 uh, free schools uh, around the country. Academies now make up over 60% of all secondary schools in England and around 20% of all primary schools in England. Uh, strong schools that to choose to become academies, known as converter academies, they continue to outperform local authority uh, controlled schools. And struggling schools that were forced to become academies, uh, that were taken on by a sp another sponsoring academy with a track record of success, these are known as sponsor academies. They are improving the education of their pupils at the fastest rate. But the government was determined that all teachers had the burden of bureaucracy lifted from their shoulders. So alongside the, the greater freedoms made available to teachers, the government scrapped 20,000 pages of unnecessary central guidance, freeing teachers to focus on teaching. And the government also wanted to empower teachers to tackle poor behavior. Clearer powers were given to teachers and head teachers to deal with poor behavior. And importantly, the government granted teachers anonymity from local press if they faced allegations from parents or pupils. 
And whilst there is plenty of data to demonstrate the success of the academies and free schools program, the most compelling evidence for providing teachers and schools with greater freedom comes from visiting some of the highest performing academies and free schools in England. So whether you go to see Reach Academy in Feltham, uh, Michaela Community School, or City Academy uh, Hackney, or King Solomon Academy, or Harris Academy Battersea, some of these schools, all those schools have some things in common. They all teach a stretching, knowledge-rich curriculum. Each has a strong approach to, knowledge, uh, to behavior management so that teachers can teach uninterrupted. And all of these schools that I've just mentioned serve disadvantaged communities, demonstrating that high academic and behavioral standards are not and must not be the preserve of wealthy pupils in the independent sector or in uh, wealthier parts of the country in the state sector. And the government is keen to see uh, behavior standards rise further still. Last month, uh, a well-known teacher and writer uh, named Tom Bennett uh, released his report called Creating a Culture, which was commissioned by the Department for Education to spread best practice in our schools. The government understands that good behavior is the bedrock of excellent academic results in schools. Michaela Community School in North London is arguably using the academy freedoms more radically than any other in the country, particularly with regard to behavior and the curriculum. A month ago, I was fortunate to be able to visit this remarkable school. Marking at that school is kept to a minimum. Behavior is immaculate. Children move briskly and silently between lessons, cordially greeting teachers as they go. Children have a voracious appetite for reading. Months after arriving at Michaela, pupils can converse in French, effortlessly using the subjunctive. Teaching is from the front of the classroom with frequent whole class response to check understanding. The curriculum is knowledge rich and the results are extraordinary. I have never been to a school quite like it and it serves almost exclusively uh, disadvantaged pupils. Michaela's pupils are fiercely knowledgeable and proud of it and they're some of the happiest pupils you could hope to meet because they live in a structured environment where they're safe and able to learn. Homework at that school consists of pupils self-quizzing and pupils are rewarded not necessarily for how much they get right and how well they do but for their uh, but for their effort how many how long they spent working and uh, the effort they put into that work whatever a pupil's ability their prior attainment or background Michaela believes there's nothing preventing pupils trying their best and pupils strive to work as hard as they can teachers at Michaela they don't focus on engaging pupils effort is expected and it becomes a habit and a part of every pupil's character. Engagement is a byproduct of pupils yearning to reach these high expectations. Michaela Community School shows what it is possible to achieve. It is a challenge to everyone's expectations of those pupils. If you manage to get to England, please do go to visit the school. You'd be very welcome. The greater autonomy enjoyed by schools was twinned in our reforms. Uh, with a measured accountability framework designed to ensure that all pupils received a high-quality academic education. And the government responded quickly to restore faith in our national examinations. For over a decade, exam results rose year on year as the achievements of pupils were inflated so much that the public and the media greeted every national results day with increased incredulity, and quite rightly. 
And great inflation wasn't the only thing to shake public confidence in our examination system. The scourge of what I mentioned earlier, so-called equivalent qualifications, disproportionately taken by pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds, meant that league tables were being gamed by schools at the expense of pupils taking the most valuable qualifications for their future. In all, 96% of non-GCSE qualifications have been removed under our government from the performance table since 2010. And to support our ambition to ensure that pupils get the best, the government is also in the process of phasing in new GCSE qualifications that will put England's qualifications on a par with those in the highest performing countries in the world. But we also took two further measures to refine and improve the accountability system. In order to encourage schools to enter more pupils into rigorous academic GCSEs, the government introduced a new concept in our performance tables known as the English Baccalaureate. And this is a combination of academic subjects, maths, English, at least two GCSEs, a humanity, either history or geography, and a language. And this combination of subjects provides pupils with a broad academic core of knowledge and provides pupils with the best opportunity of being admitted to the UK's best uh, and most prestigious universities. The percentage of pupils taking each of these subjects and the percentage of pupils passing this combination of subjects is published each year on a school-by-school -school basis. And since the introduction of the policy, the proportion of pupils sitting uh, examinations at 16 in this combination of academic subjects has increased from just over one-fifth to just under two-fifths. Some people are surprised that it was, all, that it was ever only one-fifth implying that four-fifths of pupils were not taking that combination of subjects in the last two years of their uh, schooling. And that's something we just have had to deal with. We got it up to two-fifths, but even that's not, not high enough. And we'll be having more to say about the English baccalaureate uh, in, the ne in, the, in the next few weeks and months. Uh, this policy is helping to reverse the drift away from academic subjects that took place in previous years, providing more pupils with a solid academic grounding that they need. Secondly, the government introduced uh, Progress 8, and this is a measure of school performance based on the amount of progress uh, pupils make at secondary school. Previously, schools have been judged based on the proportion of pupils reaching a threshold, uh, leading to a number of perverse incentives. Schools were not incentivized to stretch their most able or their least able pupils. Instead, schools were encouraged to focus disproportionately on pupils with a chance of moving from a D grade, the borderline grade, to a C grade. And if you were a B candidate, you were left alone to get on with it. And if you were an E candidate, again, they didn't think there was much chance of getting a C and, and you weren't pushed either. In primary schools, uh, reforms are still underway, but one particular test has had a dramatic improvement on standards. There's a substantial body of evidence that demonstrates that systematic synthetic phonics is the most effective way of teaching children to read. Yet previous governments moved too slowly to ensure that all pupils were being taught to read using this method. So as well as mandating early phonics instruction in the national curriculum, the government introduced the phonics screening check, teacher-led assessment of year one pupils, six-year-olds, uh, ability to decode simple words. In 2012, when we first introduced the check, just 58% of England's six-year-olds met the expected standard 
in the phonics screening check. By 2016, four years later, thanks to the hard work of teachers and the use of phonics, this rose to 81%. This amounts to 147,000 more six-year-olds on track to become fluent readers this, this year, 2016, last year, uh, than in 2012. There are few, if any, more important policies for improving social mobility than ensuring that all pupils are taught to read effectively. Literacy is the foundation of a high-quality, knowledge-rich education, and those opposed to the use of systematic synthetic phonics are, I believe, standing between pupils and the education they deserve. So by combining autonomy, intelligent accountability, and the best teaching methods, dramatic improvements are occurring in England schools. But possibly the most important component of the reforms in the last uh, parliament was raising expectations for all pupils. The government inherited a national curriculum that had been stripped of knowledge, and we were determined to tackle this injustice. Pupils, regardless of where they're born or how much money their parents have, deserve an education in the best that has been thought and said. All deserve a grounding in the history of their country and the world, a deep and broad understanding of science and a rich arts education that gives them a deeper appreciation of their culture. For real social justice, for real social mobility to occur, all pupils must have access to the rigorous curricula that characterize our world-renowned independent schools. Prior to 2010, this was not a widely held view within the education establishment in England. It was widely believed then that the curriculum should focus on generic skills, such as problem solving and critical thinking. But greater diversity in the school system coincided with the beginning of a great debate in the profession on this particular issue. And with the growth of social media, teachers have been more able to discuss the evidence that informs their practice with fellow professionals beyond the staff room in their school. Ben Newmark, a history teacher and blogger, uh, exemplified the importance of this debate in a recent blog post. And he said, Twitter was a revelation. It wasn't long before I realized that they were successful teachers who not only taught like me, but were proud to do so. Of course, not all the people I came to admire agreed with each other about everything, but none seemed to share my ideological shame. I read Hirsch, Willingham, Didow, and Christodoulou. I was helped tremendously by people who disagreed with what I was reading, but were able to articulate ideas and draw on a store of knowledge to defend their views I just didn't have. Put most simply, I'd been plugged in and found myself learning and thinking about pedagogy, and specifically the pedagogy of history teaching, in a way I'd never done before, because I realized that debate and disagreement existed and were allowed. There's now a vibrant online community of teachers who are challenging education's prevailing orthodoxy. Classroom teachers are taking to the internet to contribute and lead the education debate. And thanks to this online community, teacher-led research conferences have sprung up around the country. The past two years, I've spoken at the Research Ed annual conference, and I've been struck by the quality of debate at these conferences and the drive from teachers to interrogate and discuss evidence. These conferences, which now take place across the globe, including here in Australia, demonstrate that education research can no longer be dislocated from classroom practice, as it has too often in the past. 
Instead, teachers are demanding practical research that is relevant to their teaching practice. And bloggers from Australia play an important part in that online debate. Greg Ashman, who I hope is here this evening, uh, is a prolific writer as well as a researcher and classroom teacher. And his blogs dissect constructivist and so-called child-centered teaching approaches with robust research. And he advocates powerfully for evidence-led practice in schools. And his blog site, Filling the Pale, is a must read for anyone following the education debate. So in England, this debate has coincided with dramatic improvements across the country. There are 1.8 million more children being taught in good or outstanding schools today than in August 2010, and with that number rising by 38,000 in just four months. But nearly a million children are still being taught in schools which are less than good, according to our inspectorate, Ofsted. And disproportionately, these children are from disadvantaged backgrounds. And the Secretary of State for Education has described social mobility as our defining challenge by levelling up opportunity and making sure that all pupils get every chance to go as far as their talents will take them. The reforms that this government has enacted since 2010 demonstrate what it is possible to achieve when you provide teachers and head teachers with the autonomy within the right framework of incentives to drive improvement. And by setting teachers free to innovate, spreading what works in these innovative schools, and cultivating a culture in the profession that is prepared to challenge and engage with research, education will flourish. Thank you very much.